expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. It's episode 153 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, and yep, Nick, we've made it to year three, and we haven't rebooted once. <laughs> I'm still laughing, because there's something that we set off air that had me fucking dying, and it, I'm sorry. Well, trust me, we'll, we'll get into it more with what we're reading, because that's what it has to do with. I He's not going to be okay. <laughs> Just know that there is a fast forward option at this juncture. <laughs> Pussy traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> oh, I better get a fucking book deal at Chewbacca Mom after laughing like that. Holy shit. You might. I might. This is a thing now. Okay, back to compose. Okay, yes, it is three years of doing the Down Nerdy Podcast, and holy shit. Um. <laughs> I'm James Witham alongside the hyena. That's his super villain name now. I, I can't. It's officially your villain name now. I can't. Uh, the Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia, and you know, I'm sorry I had this whole fucking intro, we got fucked, but, uh, anyways, we've been around three years, and I gotta tell you, we saw this thing on Friday with Marvel, how they're like, there's come out, they're re, oh my god, again, like, they just had Marvel now, and things are like, what, in their fourth or fifth issues now? Yeah. And they're like, you know what, we're gonna th- just... It's kind of like what they're doing is you, you finally set oh, the table. Oh, I know exactly what they're doing. Well, there's, it's like you're <laughs> setting the table, and then Marvel comes in and says, this is a piece of shit, and they just wipe everything off the fucking yeah, desk. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, because they're coming out with this whole make mine Marvel, and it's, they're like, we're going to relaunch titles, but not with number ones. No, we're going to do like what Action Comics does and, and, and Detective Comics. We're going back to the big numbers and everything else like that. You're not fooling anybody. No. Well, I mean, they're, feeling, they're probably fooling some people. But still, it's like, it's this is the problem. You stick to the plan. Like, at least with Rebirth, there are like 18, 19 issues in right now. So, you know, it's, it's like, can we can we just, Marvel, can you, can you just go six months to a year without having to reboot everything again? The, the Cleveland Browns have been more steady at quarterback than, Ooh, the, than Marvel has with their titles recently. But it just goes to show, though, if they're... And, and this is the problem. Now, I mean, sales numbers haven't haven't really been the best, but I mean... Well, I wonder why that is. Well, here's the thing, is that... It, what does it say about... This is just any publisher at all. When you're constantly rebooting stuff, what does it say about you as a publisher? It says, A, you're not confident in the stories you're telling right now. Right. And it says, you know, and also in a sense that you're coming out with this new initiative and it's being called Make Mine Marvel. That's pretty pretentious as fuck. Yeah, spot. it really is. Make Mine a Marvel. Yeah. I, I want to punch you in the goddamn face right? right now. But yet, that's the impression it gives off, does it not? Yeah. Oh, and we're going to have issue 900 of Thor and we're going to have 
core titles and um, Captain America's not going to be Hydra anymore. Um, Jeeves, make mine a Marvel and please grab me the Deadpool 999, please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, right? I yes. mean, come on. You're not picking wine, you know no, what I'm saying? No, you're, you're not. not. You know, you're, you know, you're the Pinot Grigio from 38. No, you're, Just you're, you're picking up a fucking Spider-Man get comic. The, get the box out of the fridge and have your <laughs> right. beverage, okay? I mean, right. come on now. I mean, I know the comics are a much bigger deal than they have been in a long time, okay? The comics themselves have had kind of a reawakening in the last, I'll go five years. Yeah. They've had a very much reawakening. More people are reading comics now than they have than have for a while. But, you're well, right, this is not Pina Grigio here. That, Come and, on. That, and that's the thing, is that, like, again, it's, it's one of those things where I want to be a Marvel fan again. And, you know, we're not talking about this in the beginning of the show to, to bitch and, and, and beat up on Marvel. If anything, we want publishers to succeed. But when they can constantly take steps backwards and shoot themselves in the foot, you, we can't just, as people who not only have a show in the reach we do have uh, with the show, but just nerds in general and comic book fans in general and say, guys, you know, enough. We need to sit you down on the couch and say, what, you know, what the fuck is going on here? See, this is another reason we need Timeless to be renewed, NBC, because we need the team to go into the lifeboat right. and go back and stop Marvel from rebooting the first time they did it like right. four or five years ago because little did we know the hellish cycle that they were about to put themselves on. And that's really what did it. When they, right after Superior Spider-Man, right. when everything seemed to be getting rebooted, it just sent them on this tailspin of reboots on every title, and now they don't even—they don't even really know where they That's are sad, anymore. But if you're if you're somebody who is currently reading a Marvel title, you have a couple of titles you might like from the Marvel Now, you know, run that they're doing now. But now you get this news of like, oh, they're going to redo everything, you know, soon and everything else like that. And you're like, guys, come on. Like, 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 really? And you know what? It took a lot of balls for DC to go. You know what? Screw it. What we're doing is not really working for us right now. We're going to tear it up, rebirth pretty much everything, and just and they start did it from smart. scratch. And they, they did it in a smart way where they said, you know what? We have this character who can take away time and shit like that. Let's just have, pretend that the whole new 52 era, all past five whatever years, yep, 10 happen. years wiped out. 10 years wiped out. That's the end of it. And now, of course, they're going to be doing, I believe, a Batman. Watchmen's crossover, which is probably going to... Flash t- will be in there as well. Which yeah. is going to tie in everything Those together. Lexicon covers are sweet. Yes. Oh we're we'll talking God. a little bit more about covers, too, later on. Exactly. But come up next. It's what we're reading. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming. Hi, this is Ted Adams, CEO and publisher of IDW, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We pull out our long boxes and we discuss... What we're reading this week, and now you're fucking laughing now. No, there's a reason for it. It's not the, in the childish way that everybody thinks it is. Uh-huh. It's, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you saw it. I saw and it. And I saw it, yeah. so you know, okay, I could, I'm sorry. If you, yes, it's the reason why I was laughing my ass off like yeah. the Joker in a hyena. Yep, yep. and there's some things you just can't show. get out of, too, by the way. We'll get into that a little oh, bit. Oh, more ways than one, mm-hmm. trust me. Uh, but my book is first, and this week, James, I decided to go into the Dynamite Realm. And, you know, when I was a little kid, whenever I went to a Catholic school, and in the library they had the kind of area where the older students would go, which had a lot of, the, you know, non-picture books, biographies, stuff like that. But the rows of books, and I remember, they're blue, like, hardcover books. They're the Hardy Boys books. Yep. And... I never read Hardy Boys gro- growing up. I've never, like, this is literally my first time touching a Hardy Boys or 
a Nancy Drew book in my life. So this book, of course, you have known by now, is Dynamite's Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, The Big Lie. And, of course, published by Dynamite. Written by Anthony Del Cole. Art is done by Werther Del Adira. And colors is done by Stefano Simeone. And letters done by Simon Boland. So the story starts off is that there's a murder. Now, this is not a spoiler because it's literally in the beginning of the book. And it's in every one of those stories, basically. Right. Too, so chill. Right. So <laughs> their, their dad is dead. Talk about the Hardy Boys. And they're being framed for it. Now, I can't go into certain specifics because it's pretty much the way this book plays out is. It's like, where were you the night of? It pretty much plays like a 24-page interrogation scene, which is basically what it is. It's a 24-page interrogation scene. So I was kind of like, you know, where were you on this night? Where were you this? You know, right. what happened with this event and that event? And so part of me is sitting here like, okay, this is kind of interesting. You know, I like the interrogation techniques. I, I, I like kind of, mis- I love mystery. You know, I love noir and, and, and mystery. So, it, you know, it's really, really nice. The only problem with that, though, is as I'm going deeper and deeper into the book, there are certain things where I'm like, okay, maybe this could be omitted from the story. Maybe that could be taken away. And it's one of those things where it really, in a sense, I think forgets that it's a comic book and, 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 and thinks it's a novel or, or a non-picturesque book where it kind of gives you detail by detail mm-hmm. of like, you know, talk, like they go into detail about like clocks and stuff like that, which is, and, and I'm kind of like, I can see that. Like, you know, I know you're trying to portray to him why this right. is happening, but I can, you know what I'm saying? Because in the end of the day, it's like you can have the characters come to a conclusion about how did, you know, the Hardy Boys' father die, you know. But in the end, it's kind of like the reader is the one that's going to be making that decision. So, overall, I think, you know, when there were parts of the, the, I will say this, it is a long interrogation scene pretty much over these these pages. And it does tend to drag. There were times where I'm like, okay, I got to be towards the end, right? I got to be at least on page 21, 22. Next thing I know, nope, only on page 14. And and there's times where a lot of that, I think, is because there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of word bubbles, and, yeah. and, and even there's word bubbles, and then there's kind of like off-panel off, off panel narration going on as well. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Whereas, like, you know, they're getting interrogated, and so you have, like, a square that has a cop saying something, one of the Hardy Boys saying something, so it's kind of like, yep. you know, narration, you know, in, in a different scene, pretty much. Uh, the ending, I will say this, I... Getting towards the end of the book, I can see where the ending is going uh, based on, they say, a little birdie and stuff like that. So you kind of get an idea, okay, this is where it's going. I know exactly how this is going to end. However, there is a nice, it's not a huge twist, but a nice small one where you're kind of like, oh, I I appreciate what they did with that. That's kind of, you have my, my interest here. Now, as you mentioned in the intro, of the show, we were going to talk about covers. Now, this is something that I think is a problem uh, in comics, and it's something that's happened throughout, mostly throughout the years, re- at least recent years, uh, is that you have a cover which is so... It captures, like... To me, the cover of this book really captures that mystery you're looking for. It really captures that, ooh, this is kind of like a... has a sense of realism. It has a sense of... Not greediness, but just kind of like ultra-realism and stuff like that. It's a nice cover. It's a nice cover. Really nice. But then you open it up, and what they're going for in the art here with uh, Deladira is 1950s, 1930s, you know, old-school newspaper kind of, you know, comic strip art in a sense. Yeah. And and it kind of like, with me, I'm kind of like, oh, that, that took me out of it because the art, it's not bad, but there were parts where I'm like, 
the the backgrounds and and everything that's in, in it is kind of blending into one at a certain point. Right. So it's kind of right. like okay, this isn't really the best. It's not terrible by any means, but I, I think that when you look at the cover, it's that self that's that false re- realization of like, oh, I'm going to get this great book. And, you know, let's look at the way the cover is. And so something I hope that we see more in the future is I understand that artists are have different schedules and time constraints and everything else like that. So maybe all they can do is a cover. But I hope that as we go forward, and you mentioned Green Arrow Rebirth with DC, is that they start using cover artists for the interior art. Yeah. Because for me, when you get that consistency as a reader, you're like, I am drawn in. Because the thing is, the story can be, while it can be great, if the first thing you see is, is art that is nowhere near what you saw on the cover, it will take you out and will hurt your opinion of the book. Even though it could be a great book, right? it's just like, but imagine if it was drawn this way. And you were even saying when you were reading it, like, okay, I understand why they're drawing it this way because right. you kind of need to do that for the story that you're telling. But at the same time, you, you dangled this carrot in front of me right. and now I can't put it in my salad. Right, exactly, and, and you know, and, and the thing is too is it's well, it's tough as well because if you go into a comic shop, you know, they, they, a lot of them have no reading policy. Oh yeah, so you can't really thumb through nope. stuff like that, you know. And like I said, the art's not terrible, but it's 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 just, I just wish that the people who did the cover did the interior only because of that that consistency. And I think that sense of realism. But I understand what they were going for. They were yeah. going for yeah. in the interior. This is nothing against Werther at all. They were going for this is a Hardy Boys book. This is Nancy Drew. They have a lot of history. A lot they've been around for many years. Yeah. So let's kind of give that classic kind of a feel. And I understand they want to go for that, but it's too much of a of a distance between the cover and the interior. Yeah. Overall, again, this is, this whole first issue is pretty much a giant interrogation scene. Nobody knows what the fuck is going on, uh, and, and, and so you left with all these clues and all these ideas of what. And how he could have died and so on and so forth. I'm going to give this a pickup only because I hope that this isn't one where as I go forward in issues 2 and 3 and 4 and so on, if it captures my attention is, it's very long-winded. Right. If it finds a way, I know it's a detective book, but if it finds a way to find that heavy medium of getting two things and, and, and kind of getting to reveals a little bit faster, I think that this would be... A, a definite pull, but for right now it's a pickup. Right. Speaking of long-winded, uh, my book this week <laughs> was American Gods number one from Dark Horse. Of course, story. Now I have to break this down exactly the way it says on the inside of the cover. Okay. So story and words are by Neil Gaiman. Script and layouts are by P. Craig Russell. Art is done by Scott Hampton. Quote, somewhere in America, unquote, which we will talk about, which is a piece at the end of the book, <laughs> is done by, and it doesn't say who does what, but it's done by P. Craig Russell and Laverne Kinzerski. And then the letters for the whole thing are done by Rick Parker. Now, before we get to the end, and we will get to the end, I will say that for anybody that's read American Gods, the novel version, or if anybody that's been interested in the upcoming TV series that's going to be on Stars, this book is very, 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 very Shadow Moon heavy. That is the main character of this story. Bar none, they make no bones about the fact that Shadow Moon, this is his story from start almost to finish. Because he is, I mean, I can say that I've read a lot of comics, and I've never read a comic 
that wants to you to be absolutely positively sure who the main character is and why you should care about said main character than this book did with Shadow Moon. Because, man, did they just... And like you said, you want to talk about narration? This is based on a novel, and it's it's very obvious <laughs> that it is based on a novel because yeah. there's a lot of narration. I, I was sitting across from James when he was reading the book. We were both reading our books across from each other before we recorded this, and just looking at his facial expressions and just some of the narration he read aloud... I literally it had me in tears. It had me laughing so and, hard. And some of that was in the somewhere Amer- in America part, which we will trust me, we will get to. And again, that's why I was laughing so hard in the beginning when we started the show, because just the narration it stuck in my head, and just I mean, your 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 faces went from like confused to whoa, is this really going on? To disgusted in like a matter of 10 seconds. And that, that sums it up pretty well. But for the main story itself, I mean, it, I mean, this is no real spoiler territory. Shadow Moon's in prison. He's been in prison. He's talking about, yeah. you know, what it's going to be like when he gets out and his time in prison. I mean, really a lot about his time in prison. It's like, when the hell is this guy going to get out? You actually feel like you're living it in real time with him. He's like, I've got 30 days. Now I've got two weeks. Now I've got a week. Now it's three days. Now Tuesday. I'm like, let the fucking guy out of prison already. (laughs) I mean, come on. Let him out. Right. But then, of course, there's this mysterious thing that he gets told while he's in prison. Something really bad happens while he's in prison. I can tell you that. I won't tell you what it is. But And so he's got this plan for his life after being in the big house. And it gets thrown through a loop. And then he meets someone along the way, which is also, if you're familiar with American Gods, somebody that you will be very familiar with when you see him on the page. So basically, if you've ever wanted to see this book brought to life in comic book or graphic novel form, I mean, this is for you. The art is solid, man. I'm not going to lie. The art is solid. So that much I can tell you. Now, Moving along. (laughs) Once the book, which is an oversized issue, by the way, gets to the ending of Shadow Moon's story, I can't begin to tell you how random the somewhere in America portion of this book is. Uh, I literally cannot tell you any details. A, because I'm not allowed to spoil this book. Yeah, Dark Horse, like, literally Dark Horse in the email said, do not spoil this book. And B, because maybe you wouldn't believe me if I told you what happened. Let's just say, this much I can say. There is a man. Yes. And there is a female companion. Yes. Draw from that what you will. There is a certain act. Okay, let's just say this. Three words. Venus flytrap. Okay, that's fair, because that doesn't really give away anything. Um, Let's just say, when you see what you see... First of all, you won't see it coming, either, by the way. (laughs) No, you won't. And and second of all, after James read this, and I saw his his expression, just his, just... (laughs) The word you said afterwards. I'm just picturing you, like, going home after this, and just getting in the shower, just scrubbing... This off of you and just crying. Just yeah. <laughs> We're talking down to the bone here, people. <laughs> I'm just telling you this right now, and this is in no way me discouraging you from reading this this comic. If you've maybe it's in the I haven't read the novel. I don't know if this is part of the novel, okay? Let me just say that the last two pages of this book 
You will never unsee this. So tread lightly. I cannot stress this enough. It makes E.L. James look like a fucking saint. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you will not unsee this. By the way, anybody who doesn't know and doesn't feel like Googling it, that was the writer of Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. So, I find myself sitting here wondering what in the holy <laughs> hell I'm going to rate this book. Now, let's just take that portion of the book and set it off to the side for just a second. Which is... Really more difficult to do than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I'm just picturing your wife. You showing it to your wife in her face. <laughs> it would not be the best. <laughs> I I know what that face looks like, and it wouldn't be good. Um, yeah. so the the actual main story. Let's just call it that. I guess. Um, it just took so damn long to get to the point. Uh-huh. And, and no, I know it's an oversized issue, and I'm sure there was a reason for that. But from, from where I was sitting, I could have taken at least, at least five pages out of this book and not felt like I missed anything. Mm-hmm. Because it was just too much. And yeah, there's a couple of interactions that Shadow Moon has while he's in prison. Yes, they're important. I get that. That needed to be done. But there was so much of, here's what he's doing now. Here's what he's doing now. Here's what he's feeling now that didn't matter. That's the problem with novelization, with with bringing novels to life, is the fact that, like, you would think there would be ways that the writer or the person who's adapted this can say, you know what, we can cut this narration out. Yeah. Because you don't need to see this, you know? And I realize it's Neil Gaiman, and maybe you have a name attached like that, and you're like, people are going to want to see all this because it's Neil, so we're going to put it in there. But, all right, fine, but, but... But if you're seeing it, why do I need to read that it's happening? Like, right, and that you know? was part of it, too. It's like, you're literally describing to me what I am actually seeing right in front of my face, which I don't get, What and not a lot of books do that, but I don't need it told to me right. when I'm seeing it. And I really didn't need it told to me in the last four pages of this book because it was really, really, really right there. Okay? And uh, what was funny was is that the last two pages that horrify me to my core, there was no <laughs> description of that whatsoever. That was the one thing that they felt in this book needed no proper description. That what happened at the end of this book, people were like, okay, that's natural. Yeah, Little Shop of Horrors is never more appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say that right now. So, even if I didn't see what I saw, I still think I'd be dropping this book. Really? I get that there's intrigue, but it's almost like you gave me so much in the beginning of this book, and then towards the end of the main story, you give me virtually nothing. To describe why this is supposed to be interesting. Real quick, so we know that the show's coming to the stars. Will this make you want to watch it? Just to see, like, okay, maybe the book adaptation isn't as good as the that show? May, yeah, it, it does not make me not want to see the show. Because part of me wants to see, are they going to do the show like they did this comic? Or is it strictly more based on the novel? I mean, I'm not sure this makes me want to pick up the novel either, though. That's the thing. I'm right. not sure that... This make you didn't give me enough in this because you gave me and I, I'm not saying that Shadow Moon's not an interesting character and I'm not saying there there weren't points where I didn't care about wow this sucks that happened to, that this happened to him or wow he's this or wow he's that. What I'm saying is is that if you look at the story overall as a whole and not make it about one person, there's not enough there. You didn't give me enough. You spent so much time focusing on this one person that you didn't give me enough of anything else. 
Hmm. You know, it's not like in a Batman book where you're focusing on Batman a lot because he's Batman. You know, this is Shadow Moon, and I'm not. I don't just don't think there's a comparison enough there to draw that much in. So I got. I got to give it a drop. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of What We're Reading. Coming up next, the end is finally here. That's right. The road comes to an end for one mutant in general, and his name is Logan. And our review of his final movie, Logan, is coming up next. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we knew the end was coming soon. The end of an era for Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. So we're going to talk about Logan this week. Spoiler-filled review, by the way. And Nick, what do you think? Do you think it went out with a bang or what? Well, well first of all, I just want to say to Hugh Jackman, 17 years. Yeah. 17 years playing Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine. A lot of props to him because if you think about it, actually, really, if you, yeah, if you do... He's been the one actor in Hollywood who's played pretty much the same character in terms of a comic book movie for the longest. And think about this. Think about how long, like, Kelsey Grammer played Frasier. Right. And stuff like that for almost 20 years. But that doesn't even seem to compare to Hugh Jackman, and, even though it was, like, less And not just that, but stuff, it's also but the still. end of an era for Patrick Stewart, because he's pretty much just said he's done as yep, well. Yep, yep. You know, I mean, he's he's an older guy now, of course, and and so he's done all right. But we'll get to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more ways than one. But uh, overall, I will say this, and I kind of want to highlight this too: is this? If I know your theater didn't show, mine did. Uh, in the beginning of, of Logan, they show uh, the three-minute short for Deadpool, which of course which I did see later for, on, for, yeah. for Deadpool two, which of course is online right now. And I think that moment was more of a passing of the torch from Logan saying, okay, yeah. here, here you go. It's, it's totally different than the movies that we've seen, of course, Logan in. But, you know, this is where the X franchise is going to go. Yep. And now, of course, you have Fox saying, well, maybe we're just going to take, you know, dive in full and make all our X-Men stuff rated R. I mean, there's even talk saying that with the rated R movies – apparently Fox has done what DC has been wanting to do for some time. And now DC's sitting there going, hey – they're doing pretty well. Uh, if I'm DC, I'm tapping the brakes, though, based on some of the people they have in that universe. Some you can do, some you can't. But that's a, that's a different story for right. another day, yeah. Right, but but overall, I will say this. Um, the Deadpool 2 short, I'm not going to get into too much detail about it uh, because that's not what we were talking about, but I, I, I loved it. Well, yeah. I, I think that it was it was great. Uh, I think for people who think that the new director, who, of course, is one of like, the co-directors of John Wick, he's going to be too serious or anything like that. I think that's it's fine because Ryan Reynolds in the <laughs> Ryan end. Ryan Reynolds is there. He has it's control okay. over everything and final yeah. saver everything. Uh, plus, the thing is they did the – it really it was a short film. If you think about it, it was over three, oh, three minutes, 45 seconds. But moving on a little bit, of course, the synopsis of this is – and we thought this was when we saw the trailers. Oh, it's post-apocalyptic. And it happens. Nope, this is just 2029 Mexico. Yeah, which I kind of like that they could have done that and they could have highlighted that a lot more. All they did was establish that it was 2029, established a couple of other things. There was even right. only really a couple of real futuristic things in the movie, period. The ways you know? the cars look, where you had the cybernetic arms, like that with the Reavers. Driverless semis, right, stuff like that. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and so, of course, Logan is older now and his animantium is poisoning him, which is the reason why his. You know, his healing factor is not healing, yep. and he needs, you know, a special juice to inject, and later on in the film he does, to, to heal and stuff like that. Of course, Patrick Stewart, now, I'm glad they went this route with him, where a lot of people were saying, well, maybe it's one of those things where 
he's not really there. It's just a figment in his, you know, it's his imagination. He's kind of pushing a, a form of him into Logan's life per se. But he really is is an old, you know, ninety year old man who has seizures and Alzheimer's, and his wet in his mind has been labeled as a weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, and it's a nice full circle moment, I think, for the franchise as a whole, where you had. Professor X taking Logan in in the beginning and kind of showing him what it was like to to be a man almost kind of thing. And now you've got the older Logan taking care of Charles. Well, I don't think it was really him making him a man. It was more of him showing what family is. I mean, we kind of get that look of it, you know, throughout the film. I'm I'm talking about Logan. But pretty much, and this is what I want to get to first in in the brief synopsis of everything is, you know, this is 2029, mutants are gone. And we think, well, what took him out? Was it the Sentinels that took him out? Who took him out? And there's two events. One, of course, was not. Both, of course, really weren't shown on film, but they were alluded to. Uh, I want to start off talking about the Reavers. And basically, just if you listen to what they talked about with Caliban, they talked about how there's that there's that scene between Pierce and Caliban where he's talking about, like, you know, you helped us round up the old muties and stuff like that. So pretty much Caliban, before joining up with Logan, a year prior this film takes place, uh, is a, he's a tracker. So he helped them track down the mutants and helped them get rid of the mutants. Which was an interesting little nugget in this movie because you see him kind of helping Logan with, with right. Charles and you know they've got this camaraderie going on. You see how much Logan actually cares for Caliban when he thinks something happens to him too. But the thing is, is that that little twist... It wasn't even something I was really paying attention to. It's not like I didn't see it coming, but it was almost like you wouldn't even think of that. And right. then when you heard it, it was like, whoa, that's kind of heavy. That's very heavy. And, I mean, a mutant doing this thing to eradicate his own kind is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, working with these assholes. Right. Who- the other thing that was mentioned but was not filmed, and I like the reasoning for it not being shot, uh, of course, is the Westchester incident. Yep. And that is what Charles Xavier, you know, what happened to the X-Men. Now, again, if you can piece pieces together you can get the idea of what killed the x-men was okay he had his first seizure and nope and it killed all his students and it killed 300 plus people and everything else like that and i like that james mangold talked about how he didn't want to put that in the movie because he actually said he was going to put that at the beginning of the movie but then he said but that'd be about the x-men dying you wouldn't get this human side and this family side, this kind of Western feel that Logan really is. Not only that, but I like that they had that moment later on in the movie where, where Charles kind of remembers the incident, and he talks about it, and he says, but you still took care of me to Logan and stuff like that. I like that they did it that way and had that moment And not just on. that, and what makes, and this is where the you know our first big spoiler really comes into play, where Professor Xavier dies and gets killed, of course, by X-24, mm-hmm. But he's lying in bed, and this is really was a, a real emotional moment for me, and it was a human, very human moment where he's talking about, you know, this is the best night I've had in a long time. Yeah, the but I don't, aspect, but yeah. I don't deserve it, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like he's like, I've done terrible things, and and so then the next thing you know, X twenty four puts his claws in him, and and he dies. And in that moment, thinking that Logan in that moment right. kills him, and then when Logan finds him and says, "It wasn't me, it wasn't me," that. That was tough, man. That was tough. That was really, really tough. And, and, a, and a major strength of this film was it took... It wasn't a film that was based on... Of course, everybody's like, oh, Ray and ours. We can see you know, Logan, the effects of him cutting off people's heads. And X-23 heard the decapitating people, too. It was... The, what made this movie, I think, the best... I'm going to say this. The best X-Men movie. 
not just Wolverine, but the best X-Men movie was, it wasn't built on spectacle, where no. a lot of superhero movies are based on spectacle, you know, and, and, and just effects and, and grandstanding things. The, the best part of this movie, the way this movie great was, the fact it was filled with a lot of human moments which made non-mutants look and feel human, made you relate to them. That to me, you know, this was, I told you going into the movie on Friday, when I saw this on Friday, and I told my friends who went to see it over the weekend as well, I said, go into this movie not expecting a comic book movie at all, or a spectacle. Go into expecting a character-driven drama with people who happen to be mutants. Which I kind of expected, given everything that they'd shown us about this movie, which is kind of why I was excited to see it in the first place, because, you know, we talk about getting breaks from the norm in the comic book genre, and I feel like even though this had those mutant elements, and you had familiar characters, that it was kind of that break. Well, if you look at a lot of films, both Marvel and even DC as well, they're starting to, after so many films, they, they begin to, to mimic each other in their time of beats, the, 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 the way they're written, and just certain spectacles, and the way that the, even the final fights happen and stuff like that. Well, I mean, you could talk about the Doctor Strange-Iron Man comparison until the cows come home. So Right, yeah. right, exactly, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, overall, what this film, what I liked about it was also it gave us our first look, of course, at X-23, a.k.a. Laura, a.k.a. Daphne Keene, who I think did a phenomenal job playing her oh, because... Yeah. The first half of this film, she is a silent role pretty much outside of her screaming, so it's all in emotion. I want to talk about that scream for just a second, okay? Yeah. That primal scream that she had, it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It was just so, I'm like, how is this girl doing this and bringing out this emotion? I think that that alone made this character so fierce. It wasn't just the stuff that she was doing. It was that primal scream that she let out when she was doing it. And here's the thing, too. I want to get your your take on this as well. Of course, you saw this with your wife, and she's like very excited about Wonder Woman. When she saw X-23 and how this possibly can go towards, you know, they're talking about, okay, we're not going to do Wolverine for a while if we do bring it back. If they were to bring Laura into, I mean, in the comics and Marvel, they, you know, put she's the new Wolverine. So if they you know, made it to where, okay, we want to do Wolverine, we want to make Laura Wolverine just an X-23 film in general. How do you think she would react to that? And honestly, what was her reaction to X-23 in general? She, she, this was very heavy. Yeah. She, she couldn't really handle uh, Logan too much. This was a little bit heavy for her. It was a little bit over the top for her as far as, like, the violence and stuff okay. was concerned. And it was a little... It was a little heavy, you know, because she she likes the lighter-hearted nature of the X-Men right. movies from cuz you know, she kind of grew up on those in a sense and even on the animated series as well. So she's like, I don't know. This one's a little different well, I mean, for me, but I, from from my perspective, yeah. I I'll take it. Yeah. A thousand times and, over. And you want to talk about like, you know, Wolverine's been doing or Wolverine, Hugh Jackman has been playing Wolverine for You can call him Wolverine. Years. I'm sure he wouldn't be offended. Right. <laughs> but he's been playing Wolverine for 17 years, so if you want and what we talk about the one thing we want to see in superhero movies, if they're going to do bring Robin into Batman, we want to see the evolution, the growth yeah. into that role. You have Daphne Keene, who's young, and you have her play Laura in X-23, but then as she gets older, into her teens and stuff like that, and her into her 20s, maybe even however you want to go with, along with this, you want that thing of, like, I've seen her, this girl, grow up. That's what I mean. You want to look at right. movies like Harry Potter, where you saw the kids grow up into right. those roles. It's the idea of seeing somebody grow into a role over time that kind of brings everything together. And, again, brings me like Logan to the point where I cried at the end. Here's the thing, too. I automatically you saw articles pop up after this movie was over. Here's who should be, who should be the next Wolverine. 
No. You know why? Because of what just happened right. with you a second ago. You said Wolverine and not Hugh Jackman. Whether people might like it or not, and I know a lot of people do, and I'm one of them, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. Is Wolverine. So nobody's going to replace him. Yeah. Not now, anyway. Ten years from now? Sure, maybe. Sure. But having Daphne Keene step in as X-23 and fill that Wolverine void, mm-hmm. I think, is exactly what they need to do right and, now. And again, the thing is, you know, when you look at the end of this movie where Wolverine does die, yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, that's how, no matter what, I think, if you really think about it, it's not really supposed to say, oh, he dies in the end. Because I think everybody figures he yeah, dies in the end. pretty much, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is his last film yeah. as Wolverine. Uh, but I think that the way that they ended this, where, again, you have her being this girl who, who wants to get to Eden, and, you know, you have this whole Western thing, and just this dynamic, you know, of this kind of complete stranger, mysterious stranger to her in terms of, mm-hmm. terms of Logan, who ends up being, really, you find out, it's her father. Yep. I mean, we've known for a long time. Of this course, was not yeah, spoiled yeah, to us. Yeah, yeah. But that moment when he got impaled on the tree branch, and she's crying, and she says, Daddy. When she said, Daddy, I was bawling, man. You know what's weird? The part that got me wasn't that. I mean, that's what kind of pushed it up to the surface. Right. But for some reason, what got me was when she pulls the cross out of the ground, right? And oh, I'm like, I like, cried, Is too. she going to take it with her? And then she turns it, and it's an X, and I went, nope. 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 <laughs> For some reason, that was the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge. Dude, I'm like, are you I kidding was, me? I was openly sobbing. I wasn't the only person. I saw this twice. I saw the movie twice, actually, over the weekend. And I was on Friday, and I saw it once on Sunday. And I, I cried. That's the reason why I wanted to see it a second time, exactly because it was just a great movie. But I'm like... Because you were blind through the last five minutes of it. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh no, it was more like, okay, will this have the same effect on me knowing what happens? Will I cry again? And I did. The same yeah. amount of tears flowed and everything. And and the way this, that Mangold did this movie was, was brilliant. You do it as a Western. You do it as a drama film. because and, and what I liked about this movie, too, was the terms of the writing was, this is a very dark film. But there's moments of light. And I want to talk about the Munson family real quick. Where you're like, yeah. oh, yeah. they have this moment of like, this real family moment mm-hmm. where you're like, Oh, this is beautiful. This is nice. And then they just go, "Nope, yank, that's gone." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and when she puts and when she listens to the music for the first time, God. and just certain things that are that are brought out in her, I just thought that that was a very cool moment. Another thing I want to talk about though is, and I really liked that they did this because mm. it added to the story. I thought, how did you feel about how they literally brought comics into the story? As a way to kind of make this maybe it's real, maybe it's not kind of thing. I like that they did that. A lot of people are saying, like, well, it's kind of, we don't know if it, if it was a good move. I thought it was a great move only because, A, you're, you're being self-aware. Yep. And, B, it's kind of like, and it, it tied, and B, the comic itself, the comics itself, I should say, tied into the plot because it's the whole, here's the coordinates for Eden. And it's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't a comic book. It's That's bullshit. That's why I thought it was great. Yeah. And, you know, so it's kind of like. An escape movement, you know, especially because, you know, these are kids. They were born in these labs, and they'd never seen the sunlight, never seen, you mm-hmm. know, civilization. So you have these books, and it's like, well, what's real, what's not real? And I like that because it made everything go full, you know, full circle. And plus, it made it gave it a sense of truth, too, because it's like, okay, the world knows mutants, mutants exist and that the X-Men existed. 
So, of course, people are going to write fables. They're going to write books about him, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like, if you really think about it, like Norse mythology. You know, you have these books and everything else written like the, about these gods and, and Olympus and everything else. You and know? even Logan references it and say, yeah, this isn't the way that it really was because people died and that's how it really happened. He said, this is just bullshit stories kind of thing. So I do like that they did that and it gave him a, another sense of this isn't real. It gave him another reason to want to push everybody away. Classic and, Logan, you know? Before people want to jump on me, of course, when I say Olympus, I also mean Greek mythology as well. People are saying, that's not Norse mythology, you jackass! You know, it's... it's just need to calm just down. Calm down. You know? Just calm down. But, yeah. you know, people get touchy over a lot of things lately. But, I mean, here's the thing, though. Overall, with, with this film, again, you had those beautiful human moments. Daphne Keane was just stupendous. And and Patrick Stewart, I think, gave his best performance as Professor X. Oh, there's no question we saw about him that. at this weak state. And... and it made, you know, when he's having his, his seizures and his attacks and why he was doing what he was doing. I mean, he, he, there's, just this, there's just this innocence about him mm-hmm. in this film. You know, I mean, granted, because he was a 90-year-old guy who had Alzheimer's and seizures. But it just, there was a certain part about, the way this movie to me feel great and really hit me emotionally was everybody in this movie was broken. Oh, totally. And there, but in different ways, right. though. You know, that was the crazy thing. Right. I mean, you could make the argument that Logan was physically and mentally broken. It's literally like, in a sense, sorry to cut you off, but it's like going to a nursing home or a hospice home and seeing a family member there. Yeah. You know, like they're towards death. And you're like, oh, God. And for people who are, you know, bringing the comics back in this about the whole Old Man Logan thing, this makes me want to see an animated Old Man Logan rated yeah. R film. Because it's just, it's too insane. Him fighting the Hulk's kids and him, you know, the Hulk eating Logan and Logan cutting himself out of the Hulk and stuff like that. It just wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have Man, worked. It wouldn't have now, worked. I will say this. I like that they brought in Old Man Logan in terms of the scene where the kids cut his beard. That was and funny. Gave him, in the third act, I'm like, there's the money shot. That was There's funny. the payoff. And that I will say this. And this is what I liked about the movie as well, is that we do see him die. It's yeah. not like Old Country for Old Men where it's off screen. They give you the money shot. They give you that, that emotion, that yep. raw emotion. Mm-hmm. To, and not to mention that point where she's talking to him as he's dying, talking about X-23. You're like, this, this is where they can go with these movies. Yep. They can have her kind of go on like a revenge thing and, 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 and or just take up the mantle. Like right there you give her reason for taking up that Wolverine mantle if you want to do that a few years down the road. And you gave her just enough of that human element to not be a complete monster kind right. of thing, you know, because a lot of these kids are, are untrained. And like you were saying earlier when they said in the movie, never seen sunlight before, never experienced this, that, and the other. And we don't really know how long they've been out, really, because right. a lot of the kids were obviously the, the nurse let them all out, and that's how they escaped right. kind of thing. So we don't know how long they'd been out and what they'd experienced. So their journey from then on. But she got more than they did, I would think. And and here's the thing, too, is I think the music was done really well, too. Again, the way it was shot, the cinematography, the way it was shot like a Western, really, I think, really made it feel like uh, just something totally different that we've never really seen before. And I'm watching this again in black and white when it comes out on Blu-ray. Oh, and that's exactly. Because it just made sense. When I saw that story earlier, I'm like, that's perfect. Why not do that? And, and what I like about this, too, is, is that, again, you look at this, everything they did. And here's a question. Here's a question I want to ask you, too. 17 years, we never saw him wear the actual Wolverine costume. How do you feel about that? Okay, I've said on the show many times that I, I'm a fan of the costume, and I would love to see it at some point. But for him and the way they did these movies, 
and the choices that they made, it wouldn't have made sense. Well, remember, at the end of The Wolverine, he's handed the costume. Yeah, which, I mean, where, did you guys burn that thing? Right. Or, I mean, what, what happened to it? Well, I think that the thing, too, is if you had done it where, like, if they had literally taken the old man Logan route where he murdered the X-Men when he thought they were, you know, not X-Men, he thought yeah. they were evil people. Yeah. They did that, and he was in the suit, then they have been... Okay, but again, it felt so out of place. That's not yeah, what the tone of the movie was. You couldn't have given us that moment in this movie. It just wouldn't have made sense. It would have felt forced just well, to get to mention, him in the costume. Well, not know? to mention you needed Mysterio, and Mysterio's kind of property of both Sony yeah. and Marvel at this point. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about Untouchable times two. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But, I mean, overall, I, th- I think we've kind of highlighted most I of think we got what it. we got. I think yeah. we got our, our thoughts on this movie. Um so let's go to our ratings. What would you give this, and what you uh, what are your final thoughts about this? I gotta say, it's it's hard to say too much more than we've already said about how everybody did such a great job in this movie. I mean, even think down to the Reavers. I think they did a fantastic job. Hugh Jackman pulling double duty as X twenty four and as Wolverine and and Logan. I thought that that was really great. I thought that the way that he interacted with people who recognized who he was too was really great. And Patrick Stewart, man, I mean, hats off to that dude. I mean, the way he played. That role in his final effort as Charles Xavier, we think we, there's you know those that Legion talk is in there, but don't do it, Patrick. Don't do it. Not worth it. So I gotta say, man, it's just it's everything I think we wanted this to be, and I think that everything that everybody involved would want Hugh Jackman's Hugh Jackman's last run as Wolverine to be. So I will give this. Ten mutes turned Spanish-speaking speed talkers out of ten. Can I tell you something? I love that scene. That was... Don't hit me! That was hilarious, actually. Like, that was just great. And she's listing off the names of people. Like, I love that moment. Because it was like, you know, again, in this dark film, you have these moments of, of... of comedy. In and there. she went from t- not talking at all to 90 miles right. an hour, which I thought was really funny. Right. Uh, I'll say this. I loved how they made it to where... He is dying. I love that it wasn't just, oh, he's just old. No, his animantium is animantium poisoning. He's been around, remember, he's been around for a long, long time. So when you think about it, you're like, okay, over time, the animantium, you know, you have metal in your body either way. So it's going to not be good for you when you get, you know, to a certain age. Granted, he's, you know, 100 plus years old. I like that they did that, and they found they made it believable. I love the addition to da- of Daphne King and Laura in this. I think that by doing the X twenty three storyline and and giving that moment of wow, it's like a father daughter movie. I like that, and and you know people, I like that also people were making fun of it because like oh, it's like The Last of Us. Not quite. I mean, it had you, had, you know, you had to get this person point A to point B. Yeah, and it had certain no. things, but it wasn't really that. It no. was its own film. Overall, I think that the beats were great. Again, when you when a movie of this type of caliber and, and just genre makes me cry, this is the first superhero movie I've ever cried in. First comic book movie I've ever cried in, twice. That is something worthy of high praise. Overall, again, the cinematography was great. The pacing was wonderful. Everybody felt like they had a purpose in this movie. Stephen Merchant as Caliban had a purpose. Patrick Stewart, of course, had a purpose. And every death that happens in this really hits you hard. And props to James Mangold for saying we're not, we're going to go away from spectacle. We're going to get more human. And that's what you want, you know. As you said, this is you know his swan song talking about Hugh Jackman for Wolverine. You got to make it emotional. You have to make it hit hard. 
I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 stars you would give Logan if he was your Uber driver. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and as Logan said in X-Men First Class, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it for our review of Logan. But coming up next, ECCC, of course, Emerald City Comic Con was this past weekend. And a lot of news came out of it, including a lot of indie news in terms of comics. We're going to highlight all that coming up next. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's only a time, boys and girls, where we go around the internet and see what's trending, but you know what? As I mentioned at the end of Geektainment, we're going to go around the convention floor of ECCC, as we do pretty much every year we've done this show. We always kind of recap ECC, what happened, a lot of big comic book news comes out, especially in terms of image. And so, James, it's time for... Nerd News! And as I mentioned, Image, holy shit. So many titles, 15 in all, have been announced by Image. And we're not going to run through every single one of them because we'd be here forever. But uh, some of them, of course, have really caught our intrigue. Yeah, and props to our buddy Justin Jordan, who was at AwesomeCon, who had two of these titles. One of them he kind of teased to us. On the download back then, it was called Death of Love, which, of course, he's going to do with uh, Donald DeLay, which is a kind of a self-proclaimed nice guy, gains the ability to see the Cupid, Cupidade. Yeah. Is that what it is, the Cupidade? Okay. He's, pretty much you can see Cupid. Yeah, so basically he ends up in in this bloody and hilarious war kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's classic Justin, so that's going to come out something the When you think about it. Fighting Cupid, doesn't that kind of give you vibes of I Hate Fairyland in a sense? It kind of does, and and why not? And then he's got another one called The Family Trade, which is going to be about a family of assassins, con men, and thieves, trying to keep a floating city right. afloat, which is which is actually pretty neat. But, Nick, i, I got to say, we were looking at all of these titles, and while <laughs> all of them look pretty good, there was title? easily one that stood out. Okay, so this is from writer Jody LeHoop, who, of course, uh, former editor of Uncanny X-Force, Deadpool, and, and many other things. And also Sebastian uh, Geimer, shirtless bear fighter. That is literally the title. First of all, second of all, it is not. It is the most literal and interpretation no, ever. And no, this is not Zangie from Street Fighter's autobiography. We got this press release from Image from this. Okay, yep. I am literally going to read the whole thing. Okay, just because it's funny. Yes. Okay, after being betrayed by the bears that raised him. <laughs> The shirtless bear fighter wanders whoa, the whoa, forest. Whoa. The legendary. Shirtless oh, I'm sorry, bear I left out legendary. The legendary shirtless bear fighter wanders the forest. He's sworn to protect fist fighting bears, eating flapjacks, <laughs> and being the angriest man the world has ever known. When wild-eyed, super-strong bears attack the citizens of Major City, Shirtless, which is apparently his first name, <laughs> ventures into the human world to do what he does best. In all caps. Punch those bears in the face. <laughs> but not all is as it seems. Someone is manipulating Shirtless, and only by confronting the demons of his past can Shirtless hope to save his future. I need this book right now. This is going to be a PETA bestseller. I mean, <laughs> this is the most off the wall. I mean, if you see the covers, I'm going to scroll, because Nick hasn't oh, seen the covers yet. I haven't yet. seen the covers yet. So I'm going to scroll down here so you can see the covers right Okay. Here. Oh my god, look at the cover for Shirtless Bear Fighter. One of the covers, I shit you not, is him hoisting a bear over his head as he stands mightily atop a mountain of bears. And not like teddy bears no. or shit you get made at Build-A-Bear, like big ass 
grizzly bears, like the ones that fucked Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio in The Revenant. It is literally, and there's one of him literally just punching a bear in the face. I mean, come on. I don't know. I don't care. I mean, you know, we're, we're down for all different types of stories. But I got to tell you, this is one of those stories that I just want to read just so I can laugh my ass off the entire time. Well, I, I love that books like this are coming out. And especially that's why I love Image so much. Because you look at a company like Image and it's creator-owned. It's entirely creator-owned. So where else can you see Marvel? Or if you want to see Marvel or DC green light a, a, no. a series about a shirtless bear punching man no you know a shirtless man who punches bears in the face and there's nothing wrong with that either but at the same time this is kind of one of the things like you said you just love about image because you know every now and then you're gonna get one of those kinds of books and of course uh mage the hero denied part three is gonna be the end of the mage series as well but i mean going back to shirtless bear hunter because i mean you just can't stop talking about this type of series i look at this book in a series Again, I want this right now. I need this right now. This is the type of book that I look at where I'm like, it's just so over the top. It's so outrageous. I cannot wait to see this. Someone actually is quoted about this book. I think it's a fellow creator, Jody. Yeah, who's actually going to be doing one of the books that says, quote, probably the most important comic book (laughs) ever made. (laughs) I mean, not only that, but the the person who was also working on the book as well, Sebastian Geimer, is quoted as saying, we need him now more than ever. Someone's got to fight all these bears. I think that they, what they did was they, they saw Stephen Colbert's constant segments about bears and the threat they pose to humans and, and just, mankind everywhere and you're like this is the the hero we deserve and the hero we need i mean the, we i mean go go to the conan o'brien show too i mean we might, we might actually see the masturbating bear finally <laughs> punch in the face it, it could happen i mean you just don't know i mean well, I, I, well if he's the masturbating bear be more of a sack tap more than that, that is very true i mean you've got jeff lemire's gonna be doing another book we've got uh we've got uh jordy belair who of course uh won the eisner last year doing doing a book as well so i mean it's Props to Image for once again grabbing a bunch of great creators and all these 15 books. I'm sure that there's going to be a ton of hits there. And speaking of Jeff Lemire, we move on to our next story, which involves his work in Marvel. Now, of course, Jeff Lemire, as we mentioned, is doing some an Image book, and he's been more and more going towards the indie realm. He went, he's been quoted saying he wants to kind of do his own thing now. So Jeff Lemire leaving Marvel is kind of, is a really big story. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's kind of conjecture as to how it exactly happened. Did his contract run out? Was he fired from some of the titles, which I don't think was the case at all, based, right. especially based on the titles that he was working on. But, I mean, it's interesting because quietly Marvel's losing some pretty big names, Lemire being one right towards the top of the list, and, of course, you can add Rick Remender and yep. a couple more to that list. So, I mean, what do we attribute this to? I think we attribute this to two things, at least I do. The first thing I think being that, going back to the indie thing, when you're a writer and you're doing superhero comics for Marvel, whether it be Marvel, DC, whomever, and you write them for a while, you're kind of, okay, I kind of want to get out of this realm. I want to do my own thing. And, hey, if you have somebody like Image who says, pitch us your story and we'll green light it if it's good enough and, and if it deserves to be published. So, I mean, I think this is more him wanting to spread his wings and talk about Lemire and even the other people I think with Remender as well. And those who have left, they want to spread their wings 
and, and go say, you know, I have some ideas I want to work on. It's kind of like, for example, in Hollywood when you say, look at, look at Christopher Nolan. It's like, okay, you're going to direct all these Batman movies? Well, Warner Brothers, you're going to let me do Inception. Yeah. So in yeah. a sense, it's kind of like Lemire might have said, you know, hey, Marvel, I let, you know, I'm doing Thanos and all these other properties for you, but I want to go do this. Yeah, I mean, he's working with Dark Horse on right. some stuff. Of course, he's still doing Bloodshot, Bloodshot comics for Bloodshot, Valiant doing, and stuff like uh, that. Black Hammer. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of stuff that he, that he's doing and doing very well. So, I mean, why not do this? And if, if in any way the Marvel properties that he was working on was hindering him from being able to do right. what he really wanted to do, why not go do that? And not just that. Now, here comes my second point. And here comes my second point. Uh you look at where you have all these writers, and you look at like the Marvel Now series, for example. There's a bunch of writers doing like two, or three books. Oh, totally. So that's gonna yeah. that's gonna hurt their productivity in terms of doing their indie stuff. And that was a point that we made that you specifically made when we were talking about this when that came out and they were launching all these titles. You know, like look, like Jason Aaron's doing seven books right. or something like that. How is that not going to stretch them too thin? And basically, all you're going to be writing is Marvel stuff, right? And here's the thing. Now, Lemire signed, of course, a two-year exclusive deal with Marvel, and that's coming to a close. It's coming to an end. But my second reason why this is happening, you're seeing these kind of exodus of writers and just create people leave Marvel, is because what did we talk about in our intro of our show this week? We talked about Marvel saying, make mine, doing the whole Make Mine Marvel yep. initiative, which they're saying, oh, it's not a relaunch. I'm sorry. When you're launching number ones, new number ones, but you're saying we're going to put the three-digit numbers on them now? You got like the that? legacy numbers. Yeah, you got okay. the legacy numbers. It's a relaunch. You know what I'm it saying? Is. If it looks like a relaunch and it reads like a relaunch, it's a fucking relaunch. Yeah. So really, if you're a writer, like if you were on, like, I'm talking about me personally. I know you probably be the same thing. So say, for instance, we were brought on to write whatever for Marvel, okay? We were, and we were brought on to write stuff for Marvel now. Well, now we say, okay, we're not even like six months into Marvel now. We're like two to three, if that. And now some Marvel's like, oh, we got a new initiative, and we're relaunching everything, and probably having new teams. You're a writer or an artist. You're like, fuck, I don't have any staying power here. Like, I'm like, how? You know, I don't have any security. Uh, I don't want to put words in Jeff Lemire's mouth because he's already gotten mad at me for thinking I was doing that one other time. <laughs> so, but of course, when we interviewed him, and yeah. But at the same time. Uh, I think that if you're somebody that likes to write so long-term and think about stories right. so far ahead like he does, and we know he does, because he's literally come out and said that, how do you get, how can you be comfortable in writing ahead like that if you if in any way think that it could just all get blown up in, at any point? Well, not just that, but also write for a publisher in terms of Marvel who isn't really thinking long-term and more thinking of in segments. and, and Or where's our next cash grab? Right. I mean, let's just call it as it is, right. really. And, and, and the thing is, is the lack of commitment from Marvel is what I think scaring a lot of these people away. And what's scary, too, is, I mean, read your review of Man-Thing that's up on our website right now and how good that was. And right. even the Electra book that I reviewed, that was pretty good, too. But I read that and go... Yeah, but how long is this going to last? And, and that thing is, you know, you bring up my man, the Man Thing review I wrote, which, of course, is available on downnerdypodcast.com. And, of course, it's written by Arl Stein, who, I, I mean, I loved Goosebumps. And, I, I mean, as a kid, they lie on my bookshelves. But at the end of my review, I said, this marriage between R.L. Stein and Marl could be something, start of something great. And, honestly, could we see some, I would hope to see, you know, this is a limited, it's a limited five-issue series, so, like, could we see more of this with maybe some original characters and stuff like that, but 
again, bring up Image. I would love to see R.L. Stein do like a mini series, like like, totally. five, like, a, like a, a, a mini series or a series of five issue limited runs. You could even go Dark Horse in there as well. There's also, I mean, if anybody's worried about one more thing on Lemire, if anybody's worried about him and cash flow, uh, he just signed on for Underwater Welder, which yeah. is going to be a film from IDW, and Ryan Gosling's attached to the project. Yep. We got to talk to Ted Adams about that. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to be okay. Well, we got to talk to him about that, but we couldn't put it in our interview because it was un, uh, unannounced at the time. Yeah, so, I mean, he, but I mean, everybody's really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really awesome. But moving on, speaking of Ted Adams and IEW, let's move on to, of course, somebody who had left Vertigo Comics, of course, the imprint of DC, and now she is launching her own creator-owned imprint at IW Publishing. We're talking about Shelly Bond. Uh, you had to know that Shelly Bond was going to be coming back eventually. And this just seems like a match made in heaven. Not only is she going to be overseeing the Black Crown imprint, but she's also going to be a senior editor, special projects, all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, it just seems like the one thing that you think IDW, one thing that... They, they weren't really focusing on too much was like a horror genre right. or even like a thriller type genre. So you bring in somebody, enter Shelley Bond, and then all of a sudden that seems like it's going to be taken care of. Exactly. You look at the logo we're looking at right now, which is, of course, a black crown with an eye and a star and kind of case in the eye. This, you want to talk about horror, you look at that logo and that, that grabs you. And again... Again, going back to my R.L. Stein thing, could we see him go towards that now? Like that would be great. Like I, like, I love R.L. Stein. That's what work. I was getting to. Yeah, yeah. like I love R.L. Stein's work. So was, I really want to see him do, you know, not an ongoing series. I want to see him do limited runs. I think that, you know, get, being somebody who's written Goosebumps books and that every story is pretty much different for the most part. No stories are continuations of other ones. I think that if you do like limited runs of R.L. Stein under this imprint or image or whomever. I think it's a home run. Absolutely, and I mean we're not we're gonna have to wait until October 2017 to get right. this stuff, obviously. And but it's gonna be creator owned stuff. That's that was the other thing that was the big deal about this. And they they said they're gonna have some preview stuff by Comic Con, so we'll find out about that. But we'll, I mean, if you look at the quote that's in the press release from from Shelley herself, she says, "If you know anything about my reputation, you know that I'm selective about the story, art, and design." Yep. To me, that tells me everything I need to know about how this is gonna go. And that tells me lets me know that. I mean, of course, she's going to be heading it, but this is also going to be the fact that she has a layout of what types of stories she likes, and I, I believe that readers like as well. I mean, I think that that's proven by when she was at Vertigo, all the stuff right. that she was doing there. So, right, yeah. exactly. So I think that when you're somebody who sees that, hey, Shelley Bond is moving to San Diego and doing the thing with IW and this whole creator-owned thing, and let me just stress this, too, is this is a great time. This is, I think, what a lot of people, you know, who... I have friends of mine who are writing books right now, and they're not under a big-name publisher by any means. But they're like, you know, if there's some, some way I can get my stuff out there. The fact that there's more creator-owned labels and publishers being created is awesome. And I think that this is a good way for IDW to balance everything that they have going on. Right. I mean, you balance your your known properties with, like, the Back to the Futures, the Transformers, the G.I. Joes, and all that stuff. And you balance that out, which they, they do have creator-owned books in the main imprint, but now you open up something like this, it's... and it gives you that avenue to say, okay, l- you guys focus on this while we do this kind it's of It's a thing. direct... What IDW is doing right now in terms of their main books, you mentioned with Back to the Future and Transformers and ROM and so on and so forth... And now with Black Crown, 
it's exactly mirroring DC and Vertigo. And I love that IEW, I mean, this is a big time for IEW. And this, I mean, Underwear Welder, and you have Black Crown. This is a big get for them. Well, not just that, it's a big get, but also look at what they're doing now and the partnerships they're creating now, of course, with Atari. And when you emailed me this, your email, and this is true, James' email, when he sent me the press release for this from IEW, it just said, Dude. Yeah. And so pretty much this last story we're talking about includes IDW Games. Not publishing, but IDW Games. And they have struck a partnership with Atari. Now you're thinking, okay, of course, Atari, I believe it was through Dynamite, had the art had the book. the book, yep. You know, the art of Atari art book. Okay, so they can do some books. They can do, like, you know, they can do, like, a centipede comic series. What are they going to do? Nope. Nope, not at all. They are doing, again, this is IDW Games and Atari tabletop versions of Atari classics. Doesn't this just... When I first saw this, I'm like, didn't somebody do that? Totally didn't. And then when I saw that, I'm like, why hasn't anybody done this yet? I tweeted this out on Thursday, and I said, Atari and IDW Games teaming up to do tabletop game versions of Centipede, Asteroids... Uh, missile, what missile command? Missile command, yeah. And, and there's gonna be a few, and about four other games. I believe there's gonna be seven in total. This is very innovative. This is truly innovative and it's truly amazing. And this, of course, keeps the Atari brand and the Atari name and the history alive. I still, of course, I know it's a different publisher, but I still, of course, have the Art of Atari book on my computer on a file, and that, that's never gonna go away. It's it's amazing. I mean, we, lo- we talk about our love for Atari all the time throughout various shows. This is just, I mean, can you imagine, okay, you're, you're somebody who actually grew up with the Atari. I, my first system was NES because that was, what was out when I was a little kid. Of course. As somebody who grew up with Atari, who had the Atari, what was your reaction when you first saw this? I was just overjoyed, man, and it just seemed like a match made in heaven. And Centipede, before I even scrolled down to see what games they were going to do right. in the press release, Centipede was the literally the first one that popped into my head. And then you see Asteroids and Missile Command. I'm like, they're doing this right, not only to keep the Atari name alive, but I think that there's an importance to this as well. Not that this is going anywhere anytime soon, but keeping tabletop gaming alive. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, you know, you almost kind of take for granted in the digital world, right? Is the tabletop gaming is still fun and relevant. And you bring this and you think, well, maybe this, you know, gives it kind of the old man type thing. It really doesn't because these games in a modern world in a tabletop setting totally make sense to me. I mean, of course, you're grabbing that nostalgia aspect. But honestly, this is a great I mean, tabletop gaming we've we've seen throughout the area. We live in Virginia Beach, throughout the U.S., the entire world. We have friends who play tabletop games. We play tabletop games. So it's not just quote-unquote, older people. This is younger generations as well. Completely not. I mean, hell, if you've played a board game at any age, this should make you excited. And again, this is reaching out to that generation, even early, you know, a newer generation than myself. You know, I'm 28, so, you know, you're reaching the younger people who are in their 20s and their teens, earlier than that, possibly, saying, here's this great company of Atari, and look at all these great things. And you have a kid... I'm going to have kids later on in my life. We can introduce them to not just the games, but say, hey, you like the tabletop game? Well, 
let's go and look at the TV game and kind of how the early graphics were and everything else like that. Introduce them to all that stuff. Absolutely. It's all about opening doors, man, to newer generations. Yeah. Keeping, really keeping nerd culture and stuff like this alive. Never forget where you came from, right? And And for a lot of us, people my age, this is... Where we came from. This is how it all got started before the NES even came out. Was here in Atari. And to bring it to tabletop gaming now. And as big as tabletop gaming in general is. The only problem with this is that we have to wait till fall of 2017 to right. get our hands on these things. That's the only problem I could see with this. Exactly, man. We, went, we, we have to wait till fall for these games to come out. But something we don't have to wait for, of course, is talking to the... Well, the other hand of the demon, if we should say, because Lexa Doig, that's right, Talia Al Ghul from Arrow is going to stop on by and discuss everything that's going on this season with Arrow and how her relationship with Oliver and their partnership with Oliver is going. And we're talking about some other things as well. Stay tuned. Our interview with Lexa Doig from Arrow is coming up next. Hi, this is Katrina Law from Arrow, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast with James Witham and Nick Battaglia. Well, you can't imagine the excitement that Nick and I felt long ago when we found out that Talia Al Ghul was going to be joining the Arrowverse, and we just happen to have Talia on the line with us right now, Lexa Dorg. Lexa, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? We're doing great. As a matter of fact, when you first found out that you were going to be playing Talia Al Ghul on Arrow, did you know what the fan reaction would be like and how big of a deal it actually was at the time? You know, it's funny. I had an idea, and I I didn't know that I was going to be playing Tally Al Ghul when I signed on to do the show. So I only found out when I was got a memo about parking for my wardrobe fitting. And I kind of, I have to be honest, I did a little bit of a, a, a nerdy, jumpy clap kind of dance. I went running down to tell my husband, I'm like, dude, 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 I, I think I'm playing Tally Al Ghul. <laughs> He's like, oh, cool. That one was kind of fun. And Lexi, you know, when we look at the history of Talia in the comics, of course, it's mostly steeped in the life of Batman. But now we're seeing her build something with Oliver Queen on Arrow. So what do you find most interesting about Talia and Oliver's partnership so far? Well, I think it's the sort of mentor-mentee relationship, right? It's, it's the interesting thing to me is the sort of the hint that Talia's been through what uh, Oliver's been through in terms of having to come to uh, uh, having to come to terms with with these this incredible violent and dangerous skill set and yet a conscience, which you know it's still up for grabs how much of a conscience Talia has, but yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. As a matter of fact, I would follow up on that a little bit. Talia is very skilled in combat, but I mean, if you could make the argument that her strongest asset's actually her mind. So, do you think she uses her mind more for like a manipulation tactic or for kind of studying her target? I think a bit of both. I mean, I was joking with one of the directors on set, sort of making the comment of like, "Well, Talia, why would she do herself what she could get somebody else to do for her?" Because, you know, you're able to, and I think that's her sort of her MO is that uh, as skilled as she is, she's part of that skill is being able to read what other people are capable of and how much she can push them or manipulate them into doing what she wants done. Building on what James just mentioned about Talia's mind and her ability to manipulate others, when it comes to her motive on the show and in the flashbacks, would you say she prefers the long game or is she, you think she's someone who prefers more of a, a swifter approach to get what she wants in the end? Oh, she's definitely somebody who plays the long game. I absolutely think that she's somebody who is very patient and knows how to play the long game. 
Absolutely. We're talking to Lexa Doig, who's Talia Al Ghul on air. Of course, you can watch it every Wednesday night on the CW. And now, Lexa, as a fellow animal lover, it's really great seeing pictures of your cat Marty on Instagram all the time. Now, if ta- <laughs> if Talia had a pet, if Talia had a pet, what do you think it would be, and what would she name it? Oh wow, wow! I, wow, that's a good one. Uh, I, well, I feel like it would be some kind of a cat, but a house cat is too easy. I think it would be some kind of like kind of big cat that she might have, like a panther or something. Jungle cat, definitely not really sort of like a lion or anything like that. And what would she name it? I don't know. Something pretentious like, I don't know, Backstet or something. <laughs> <laughs> that is or the most Sekhmet. random. You know what I mean, like there would definitely be some kind of pretentious sort of like Sekhmet, the cat goddess of destruction or something like that. Yeah, like I don't think, she'd, cat... have, I don't think she'd name it Phil. <laughs> the cat goddess of destruction. <laughs> Can you just imagine? Yeah, yeah, that... I, I don't imagine it would be like, that's... Ralph. I don't think she's named it Ralph. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just seeing her like walk into a room, like with this like just power for just you know emulating from her, and just like that. All of a sudden, she goes, "My name is Talia Al Ghul. This is my Panther, Steve." You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, she has like a hedgehog named Jerry. Like I don't. <laughs> this is Jerry, and together we will rule the world in my father's name. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I'll throw him at you, and his spiky bits will hurt a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, James just mentioned uh, her father, Raish, and in previous seasons we've seen both Raish and Nissa Al Ghul do battle with other characters. So if you yourself, Lexa, were thrown into a triple threat match against them, what would your weapon of choice be against them, and what would your strategy be? I, you know, weapon of choice, I don't know, like I think she, obviously she's very good with range weapons, and that's, that's kind of indicative, I think, of her personality from the standpoint of like staying away from the fray, but doing as much damage as possible. Right. I think she'd probably do her best to set them against each other, and she doesn't have to fight at all. Ooh, that is very Talia. Yeah, that sounds that sounds yeah. just about right, actually. Now, Nick mentioned uh, Nessa Agul, who's played by Katrina Law on the show, and in a previous episode, we saw a young, very, very young Talia interacting with her and her father. So, of course, no spoilers here, but at some point, in your personal opinion, would you like to see the two of them reunite in a future episode? Because I know we would. Oh, God, yeah. That would be so much fun. I mean, it's funny, because I, I also don't know, like, would you want to see Talia and Nissa as adversaries or as allies? Ooh, that's a good I, I, kinda, yeah. I mean, I'm a bit, I'm a bit, yeah. I'm a little sentimental. I'd love to see them as allies, but then have this, like, bickering sister relationship. I think that would be hilarious, but then I generally tend to go for comedy, just personally, because I like absurd humor rather than the sort of, you know, the very dramatic arch kind of stuff that you generally tend to find in comic books, which is also really fun to play. Make no mistake. I love doing that stuff. Um, but I just, I like the juxtaposition of these two incredibly badass, you know, killers, assassins, they're amazing, they're like very, you know, dangerous, and yet they bicker over who didn't change the toilet paper roll. Like, that was right. the right. comedy gold to me. You didn't change the, you didn't filter the water in the pool there, you know, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the toilet paper roll goes over, not under. <laughs> I have to tell you this. And now we yeah. will battle to the death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and of course, over the years, Talia has had many encounters with various DC heroes. So, if DC decided to make a buddy cop show with Talia and a DC hero, who do you think would make the worst uh, partner for Talia? 
Oh my gosh, the worst. That's a tough one. I'm not, I'm not hugely familiar with the DC universe. Cause the first, I mean, it's, it's Marvel, but the first one that came to mind was Howard the Duck, but. Oh um, no, you, that's <laughs> a great that answer. That, that, that might be a really bad, but, um, DC, I don't know. Is there like an equivalent to Howard the Duck in the DC universe? Like, hmm. I mean, they, 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 they've got a, uh, what is it, like a squirrel that's a Green Lantern or something? Yeah, like some, like, off-centered that, Green Lantern. That would be awesome. Yeah. I, I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but, yeah, there, there's something something like that that there is. So, yeah, I think that that would be kind of weird. Let's go with let's go with Green Lantern squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would be kind of a crappy that would be kind of a crappy team up. Yeah, I kind of would. An amazing team up, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, because it's still a Green Lantern after all. Um, I was just thinking exactly. when we were talking when we were talking about the family dynamic between Talia and Nessa. I mean, you bring Raish into the fold, of course, her father. You know, the history in the comics and stuff, they, they don't really have the best relationship. And, you know, at one point, you know, with Batman in the comics, she, like, tries to overthrow her father and stuff like that. So how do you think that if in a future episode Talia finds out exactly the fate of her father through Oliver Queen, how do you think that that's going to make her react? Well, I don't think she's going to be too happy about that. I mean, I think the interesting thing to me, at least my interpretation of Talia, because, you know, on, on a show like Arrow, there's, it's not going to be exactly as it is in the comics. Because, I mean, Nissa, didn't she, like, torture and kill Talia, like, many, many times and, and kind of brainwash her in a Lazarus, through the process of, of uh, bringing her back to life in the Lazarus pit to turn her against Roz in the first place? It, it, um, it, like, yeah, it, it wasn't the best family dynamic. That was very weird Thanksgivings, I'm sure. It's, yeah, it was a little dysfunctional. Christmas time, not happy in their house. Um, but I think that, uh, I think ultimately at the end of the day, it was my interpretation of Talia and from what I've gotten from what they've given me to play is that as, as dysfunctional as the family is, it's still a family and your, your family loyalties always come first. So no, I don't, think, I don't imagine she'd be particularly happy with Oliver if she found out that he killed her dad. And I want to kind of go back to your first day of shooting on Arrow. And the first time you... you we're in costume and you're standing across from Stephen Amell. What was that like that, that, that what kind of bond you feel between you and Stephen and, and kind of what was that first scene with him like? Um, it, funnily enough, it awkward. I couldn't see anything because here's the thing about those really super cool costumes. Okay. So, and I mean, they're amazing. They're actually shockingly comfortable to be in. However, there are certain built in challenges. <laughs> like the quiver is a lot like, my cat Marty's cone now that he's had his balls cut off. Like, he keeps walking into things and the And then the hood, which is amazing and it looks fantastic, it's, it's leather lined with canvas to give it that structure. Mm-hmm. Also, it's also like the cone because you can't see or hear anything <laughs> in your peripheral vision. And then the, the, the sort of the uh, leg harness kind of sort of corset type thing that carries my weapon squeaks when you walk. So you're oh, this no. badass character who's bumping into things, can't see or hear anything, and goes, when you walk. So, <laughs> you know, that whole, there are all these challenges that I have such an enormous amount of respect to wear superhero costumes for people and actors who wear superhero costumes and manage to sell it and make it look badass because you've got all these, like, logistical challenges that you have to overcome <laughs> just to get to the place where you're live and graceful and badass. Wow. That it was that part of it was really quite comic, and I I barely worked with Stephen because, as you saw in the first episode, I have one line, one shot, 
Mm-hmm. So I didn't really, and it was funny because having watched the, not a lot, not all of them, because I wasn't able to watch all of them, because I literally this happened in like a couple of days, me getting cast and wardrobe getting and ending up on set, so I didn't have time to watch all of it, but I sort of said, should she have an English accent? Because Roz has kind of an Australian one, and Nissa sort of has an English accent as well. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh yeah, I guess she should. <laughs> so I'm like okay, pulling that one out of my rear end. So the English accent that I had for that one line in the first episode wasn't really strong because I hadn't worked on it yet, but um, at least I was able to know that going forward. Well, you can hear the accent evolve and hear all the squeaking action every Wednesday night on The CW if you watch Arrow. (laughs) And it's Lexa Doig who plays Talia Al Ghul. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for having me, guys. You know, James, I'm somebody who's worn many costumes. I know you're somebody who's worn many costumes. I've never worn a costume where something on my leg has squeaked before, but that had to be pretty hilarious to see on set because you have this badass assassin and you just hear, Especially when, you know, you're trying to be someone like Talia Al Ghul, like, I'm the daughter of the demon. It just doesn't scream assassin, you know, but she, but Lexa pulls it off very, very well. You know, and that's the thing too, is that Talia, for most of the time, we actually, you know, so far on, on the season, we've seen her mostly in flashbacks, but really I like that we're seeing her really in a sense, be that foundation to Oliver and, and kind of like discovering who he is like what mm-hmm. his purpose in life is after all the things he's done for Amanda Waller and everything else like that. You know, he's like, Really, I felt like through Talia in these flashbacks, you really get a sense that he actually now has kind of control on his life at this point and has like a clear view of who he is. He's not just somebody's lackey anymore, you know? Yeah, and at the same time, as diehard fans of the comics, people like you and I are sitting there going, but it's Talia, so what's really going on here, you know? So, And I mean, even when you think you know what her motives are going to be too, you don't really know. That's been the beauty about Talia al Ghul throughout the years and what I've loved about her so much is that, yeah, you think this might be what she wants to do, but then you find out really that she did that just to do this kind of thing, you know what I mean? It's going to be really interesting to see how they use her going forward in the season. Who knows, maybe seasons later they'll use her. It'd be pretty great. Again, it'd be great to see... Uh, some some team ups with some other characters as well, but I mean we'll have to wait and see what they do on the CW and what they do on Arrow. Yeah, I mean you want to carry this on into season six, guys, and have more Talia and make her the quote unquote main antagonist for season three, like they kind of did with Deathstroke carrying it over there. Got no problems with that. I'm in for that. Let's do it. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Alexa Doig, Talia Al Ghul herself, for coming on, talking about Arrow and just all the fun things she's experienced so far working on the show. And hey, if you want more of us, feel free to hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter, at downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch, at Merc with one arm, the one is spelled out. Mr. Witham, where can I find you on the Twitter? I do all of my squeaking on Twitter, at James A. Switham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. If you want even more from us, and who doesn't? We're at downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got two more comic book reviews on our website that we do separate from the show. We do that every week on the What Else We're Reading section. You see the reviews at the top. There's also a This Week section where you can buy episodes of things that we've talked about on the show, the comics that we review. If you want to buy those on Amazon, you can do that all at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, price safe comic book reading, always beg and board your comics.